0: Rundfunk. We had a band, and they're all like jazz heads. You know what I mean? Cool dudes. So we had to tell them, "You guys ain't playing on this show." And I thought they were gonna be like, "Ah, oh, that's just gonna be milk toast." But I remember them they all being like, "Oh shit, you're gonna see
1: Schaefer. Here it comes. Hey, here it comes. You're listening to Fresh Era, a show about the legends from the golden era of hip hop. Each episode, we bring you stories from the pioneers themselves as we dive deep into their lives, their struggles, and what it was like to be a part of the most popular form of music. Before before it was mainstream, I'm your host Craig Smith. Now, one of my favorite things about art in any medium is the ability to create your own world. There's something about bringing the audience into this thing that you're creating. With the right tools, you can create a reality distortion field, and everyone that partakes can get lost in the art. Well, today we bring you the story of someone who did just that. Butterfly of Diggable Planets isn't just a cool-ass MC. Turns out, the world of Digable Planets had been his brainchild for years before they got a record deal, and even. More surprising, the idea for Diggable Planets predated the members. So for this story, we have to go all the way to Seattle, Washington.
0: This is Ishmael Reginald Denon Butler, born July 3rd, 1969 in Seattle, Washington.
1: And going as far back as his grandparents, there existed this theme of exploration and hard work.
0: My grandmother and my grandfather being the uh, sort of curious and, and daring frontiersmen that they were, they came up here sight unseen, you know what I mean? To uh, forge out a new life for themselves and uh, see what the opportunities brought.
1: Eventually, they landed in Seattle Central District.
0: The sort of like up-and-coming Black neighborhood in the city where people could afford housing.
1: Central District had undergone significant changes in demographics from the early 1900s. By the 1960s, as race-restricted covenants excluded Black families from moving into certain neighborhoods, Black people from all over the country began to settle in Central District during the second Great Migration. The whole neighborhood was really vibrant with
0: a lot of transplants from um, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas. People came up here for job opportunities and shit like that. I just remember, like... Playing in the yard, playing with all my neighbors, it'd be 12, 13 kids on the block, you know, all from varying ages and people calling, you know, your mom, grandma calling you to come home, walking to and from school, from the grade school days. And at
1: home, he was faced with some changes early on as his mother and father split up, but this would end up expanding his world. They had
0: an amicable relationship, so i was always in the east coast new york where my father lived for a little bit philadelphia where a lot of my family was baltimore dc i lived there
1: this bicoastal living gave him a wide range of experiences that left their marks
0: it was very distinct what you would get in new york even what you would get in brooklyn from what you would get in harlem and then that kind of stuff north philly south philly west philly dc i was in all of those places
1: and when he got to middle school he started to live with his father permanently
0: he was actually getting his doctorate degree in early American history, so he would have to, like, teach sometime at different places.
1: And this had him traveling up and down the East Coast with his father, soaking up all the culture that he could.
0: I had a good young life, very free, encouraged to explore, actually uh, forced to explore sometime, you know?
1: And with that exploration, being on both coasts with his mother and father, he was also exposed to a spectrum of musical tastes.
0: So mom's was Motown at, at, at her core. My
2: mama told me, you better
0: shop around. But then when she got older, she was more of Earth, Wind, and Fire, Gil Scott Heron.
2: But no one stopped to think about the people.
0: Uplifted people, revolutionary sounding music, uh, Luther and stuff like that. Pop music, she was into that. My dad wasn't, it wasn't no pop
1: music. His dad took music pretty seriously.
0: All jazz all like, quote unquote, heavy stuff. All of the small band stuff. Blakey, Wayne Shorter, Mingus. He was a sax guy, so he liked all the alto and tenor players, you know what I
1: mean? And this love for jazz music was something he wanted to pass down to his son.
0: My pop got me a saxophone in the fifth grade he got me an alto sax we was in philly at the time and i started taking lessons with this dude named bobby zanko
1: the world of music had opened up to him and he was committed played it that
0: summer came back with my mom and continued to play sax in the jazz band and the concert band for the next
1: three years. And if you were to look close enough, you would see that he wasn't just trying to learn, he was trying to master. Like, I would practice
0: whatever we had to do on the practice sheet and then put on some record and try to try to get jiggy with the record or figure out what they were playing.
1: One of my favorite things about jazz music is improvisation. But any season jazz musician will tell you, you have to know the record in order to improvise. And this was something that was drilled into Young Ishmael early.
0: I stress preparation because when you're prepared, you know, that's the time you can play. Inventing as you're going, you know what I mean? Seeing two, three moves ahead, that kind of shit, you know? I've had that
1: He also had an appreciation for lyrics. Not just the lyrics from the songs that his parents would listen to, but also from television. If you had a good jingle on your thing that was
0: catchy, I I knew it and I was keen to it. I used to like Welcome Back Carter because it was always like the emotion of the lyrics like, um, Welcome Back, your dreams were your ticket out. Welcome Back to the place that you always laughed about.
2: Well,
1: the names have all changed since you hung around. Those dreams have remained and
0: they turned around. Who'd have thought we need you? We tease him a lot because we got him on the spot. Welcome back, you know?
1: And as he was growing up, this appreciation for lyrics got a little deeper. The
0: first time I really heard hip hop, it, it, it's a last poet's song called E Pluribus Unum. It's by this guy named Jalil Nuruddin, who to me is the most influential lyricist, rapper in my life. My dad was playing and we were riding in his car and I was just like, man, this is dope.
3: Selfish desires are burning like fires among those who hard to go as they continue to keep the
1: people asleep and the truth from being told. racism Racism
0: and greed keep the people in need from getting what's rightfully theirs, lying and stealing and double dealing as they exploit the people's fears. To my dad and them, it was probably, like, the illest shit, you know? Like, did you hear this? You know what I mean? Because that's how they bumped it.
1: This was 1972, still a long ways away from hip-hop. So what he was hearing from the last poets was an attempt to articulate the struggle for Black power in America. Needless to say, it left a mark. But this wasn't something he thought he could pursue. Instead, his passion was basketball.
0: Basketball is actually an equal obsession at, at music and actually took a hold of me way before music. I played basketball my whole life. Went to the one of the better basketball schools.
1: And this did a lot for his social life.
0: Basketball was my entree in the popularity. My ability to play was notable and like, you know how it is in, in communities. and People that can do things cool, they get a little bit of a Reputation. He was
1: certainly developing his reputation as a basketball player. All of that exploration and hard work that was passed down to him, mixed with the preparation that only came with experience and discipline, definitely helped his skills on the basketball court. But those qualities were also helping him cultivate who he was going to be as an MC. And luckily, he had a front row seat to early hip hop in Seattle. This group called the Emerald Street Boys.
0: Sugar Bear, James Croon, like these were the cats older than me that was getting their name up in like dancing and rapping, and they had all the girls, and you know, they would perform down at the Seattle Center, and you know, like, and Sugar Bear, he was kind of like my cousin, because him his mom and my mom were tight. We would see each other at the cookouts and that kind of things. Our family knew each other. Knowing him, was big because you know, like I would be at places he would be performing. Just one of the kids in the crowd, and I knew him. You know what I'm saying?
1: He was fortunate enough to have a front row seat to hip hop in Seattle and on the East Coast. Being so close to New York City with his dad, he got the music before most of his friends on the West Coast.
0: So it was two radio stations in New York. Chuck Chilla was on WBLS.
1: Power 5 WBLS. <laughs>
0: red alert was on kiss fm we're
1: chilling at 98.7 kiss with our homeboy cool dj red alert
0: on saturday and friday nights they had a hip-hop show and that's when they used to have um, dual cassette you know what i mean so you would have two cassette things on one would record and one would play so you could make duplicates i can't even like explain to you the actual bombastic excitement that like cats tuned in all over. Like So so if you could get your hands on a Chuck Chilla or Red Alert show, tape wherever you got back to, you were the man. I mean, they just was playing songs that you wasn't going to hear nowhere else and that weren't being played anywhere else, you know? I would get those tapes and bring them back.
2: Yo, we're the
1: Boogie Down Production Crew with the TR-808D9.
0: Man, and, and we would just sit around and listen to those tapes, man. Study the lines and study the bars.
1: And he was also studying hip-hop as a whole. It wasn't just the music he was bringing back to Seattle.
0: I would come back here and I would have... Haberdashery, New York shit, you know what I'm saying? Lee jeans, flavored jeans, suede pumas, a double goose down jacket with the fur collar, Terry Clark Kango hats, Kazal glasses, you know what I'm saying, gold chains, shit like that. (laughs) They will be like, yo, who is this dude? And my haircut was different, everything, you know what I'm saying? So that's how people kind of knew who I was, because I had this New York East Coast connection.
1: In no uncertain terms, Ishmael was that guy. He was already a stylish kid going back and forth from Seattle to the East Coast with his dad soaking up all the game he could not just from his dad and his dad's cohorts but also on the basketball court and in the sounds of hip-hop he was on a journey of self-discovery that will lead him all the way to pursuing a career in music coming up ishmael goes from basketball star to rap star and this journey will require him to use all of his skills that he picked up throughout his life to persevere after the break ishmael becomes butterfly and creates diggable planets we'll be right back This episode is brought to you by Little Giants, Giant Shorties. I've got a few kids living in my house, and I can tell you, their energy is something you can't suppress. When it comes to expressing themselves, you've got to let them shine. They are the culture, so why not let them dress like it? Right? Shopping wearelittlegiants.com gives you access to plenty of options for styling your little shorty with the same authenticity you reserve for yourself. Find T-shirts, hoodies, shoes, onesies, and much more. Honestly, you'll be jealous they don't have your size. Wearelittlegiants.com has designs that speak to the love we've had for hip-hop since we were kids ourselves. You'll be passing along your passion for the culture when you see your little giant rocking this most definitely t-shirt I'm about to cop for my son. Or this notorious RBG hoodie for my daughter. Slide through. Literally slide down the spiral slide and land in their flagship store ball pit at 4675 Hollywood Boulevard. Peace.
2: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
1: It's the early 80s in Seattle, Washington, and young Ishmael Butler, soon to be known as Butterfly from Diggable Planets, is obsessed with basketball. And this obsession will keep him all over the city. And around the city, hip-hop was starting to gain some traction. We used to go up to this thing called the Boys Club. The Boys
0: Club had a gym in it and was like kind of a rec center. So, you know, everybody would go there after school till their mom got off work, shit like that.
1: And being a kid obsessed with playing basketball whenever he could, you know he was in the building.
0: It was cool. It was rough up there. But
1: but this was another place for him to explore his love for basketball and a place where he would discover more ways that he could indulge in hip hop. Enter Sir Mix-A-Lot.
0: I like big butts and I cannot lie. And he would DJ weekends at this um, boys' club, and it was, like, known as the Hood Party. All the young thug dudes and stuff would go up there. He's a legit town legend.
1: And between Sir Mix-A-Lot and the Emerald Street Boys, he saw that hip-hop was starting to make its way all around the country. But thanks to a song that we've literally never mentioned a thousand times on this show...
0: Everybody was just writing raps, you know? So I was writing raps in school, at home, rapping over everything that I could find, like, I was developing the desire to be a rapper, but at that time, man, it was like some Lord of the Rings shit. Like, you wasn't going to make it into in the rap game. Like, you had to go to New York. You had to get a demo done. Like, nobody had no fucking studio at home. You know what I'm saying? What are you even talking about? You had to find the studio, number one. Get into the studio, two. Pay for it, three. And then what? Like, then you just had a demo on a tape. Now what? Now you got to find a record label. How you even going to get in the door? What's going to happen? And don't nobody want to hear that? shit. So, like I said, it was like winning
1: the lottery, man. And the most that anybody participating in hip-hop at the time could wish for was respect from their peers. It really wasn't about Making it and who's famous and
0: who's going to, because if you could prove that you could do it, you was going to get a certain amount of notoriety and fame wherever you was at.
1: And the culture had a little bit higher standards at the time as well. Cats would tell you, man, you need to quit. You know what I'm saying? You ain't. This ain't for you. You know what I mean? He was testing the waters with hip hop, hoping to impress the people around him. But at the time, his main obsession was still basketball.
0: Basketball was the biggest part of my life up until I was probably 20. Years old, I went to University of Massachusetts and played for a basketball coach there named John Calipari. There
2: is John Calipari. He was the
0: Atlantic 10 coach of the year last year.
1: And despite how much time he had spent obsessing over basketball, he ended up pursuing music as his primary passion. I never had professional
0: hoop dreams. I was a very good player. I knew my limitations because of my size and stuff like that, but collegiate level for me was like my goal. Music, that's what I switched over to right around 19, 20 years
1: old. And choosing this obsession also meant that he was choosing a whole new life for himself.
0: I had to bet it all.
1: And the first thing that he put on the line was school.
0: Left school, I went to New York. I didn't have no money, I didn't have no place to stay. But all I knew was I wanted to, you know what, I'm gonna go to New York and I'm 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 gonna make it. I'll figure it out when I get there, it's naivety. Some might even call it stupidity, but you kinda had to have that blind faith in order to make it.
1: It might look to some like he was unprepared, but he had spent his entire life working hard and going after what he wanted. But that didn't mean that everybody understood. Namely, his parents. You what? You know what I'm saying? Like, nah, bro,
0: like, you gotta, that's fine. But you need to, you know what I mean, don't leave school. What the fuck are you doing? You know what I mean? Like, that's how they looked at it.
1: His grandparents and parents have fought so hard to create a better life for their children. And now Ishmael was willing to risk all of that for his dream.
0: They had sacrificed, you know, and they saw sacrifice, you know, for opportunity for myself and my peers. So for me to kind of like throw it away, they didn't They didn't think that was respectful. And I didn't either, so I kept going at school kind of as long as I could. But
1: once he got to New York, it was a completely different story. As soon as he touched down, it was off to the races. And luckily, he had some family he could stay with until he was on his feet. Well, I had a cousin there, you know, so I got the couch surf. But that didn't mean it was comfortable.
0: They were like, every day, like, hey, uh, when are you getting the fuck out of here? You know what, <laughs> what I'm saying?
1: And with the clock ticking for him to get out and do his own thing, he had to resort to any methods he could in order to find his way into the music industry.
0: Back then they used to have these trade magazines hits magazine and shit like that and they would sell them at like Tower Records and it was for radio shit and in the back of the of them they would have you know independent record labels and their addresses and their lead A&R person and shit like that so I copped one of those
1: and he looked for any opportunity he could
0: and this paid off so I ended up getting a job working at the, uh, as an intern
1: for Sleeping Bag Records Sleeping Bag Records was home to acts like Tila Rock <laughs> Nice and smooth.
0: Sometimes I'm
4: slower, sometimes I am thick. I'm sweeter and thicker than a chico stick.
1: EPMD. The employer's
3: a year, yeah, we are back to work. I took time off. all the rabbits got drilled.
1: And just ice. To the
3: best of my knowledge, I guess that I'm fresh and what I manifest. I never the change. What is going
1: on? Hold it, hold it, hold it. John! And this was just the entry-level position he needed to get his feet wet in the music industry. What I was was an intern and a runner. Back then, they used
0: to make white labels, and these were test pressings of songs that were about to be released. They would give them to me as the intern, and I would have to take them to club DJs. I would go to the club, and we stand by the DJ booth and Oh, yo, I got the new, you know what I'm saying? All young dudes and shit like that. But because of that, I got to kick it in all of the clubs and shit like that. And he also got to rub shoulders with the artists. You know, let's say, oh, bring a sleeping bag jacket to the guys they're about to perform down at X Club. And then, okay, boom, I jump on the train and go down and they, Oh, ish, oh, yeah, he's here,
1: he got the jacket. He was constantly mixing with DJs and artists. And for him, this would have been a dream job. But it didn't really pay the bills. So he ended up doing what any young man in New York City in the 80s would do if he had Kinect.
0: Just hustling, man. You know what I mean? New York, you could get into a lot of things. Some legal, some not. You know, but small-time shit. Never robbing nobody and no shit like that. Just like selling weed for the big bro or something like that. Just enough to pay my rent, which was probably like 75 bucks or something
1: like that, you know? And he would need the money to pursue his passion. He wanted to be a recording artist. And in order to do that, he needed a demo. And in order to record a demo, he needed a studio. And that's where interning for sleeping bag came in handy.
0: There at that job, I met a dude who lived in Queens. He had a home studio. His name
1: was Stacy. And he
0: let me pay him to come out and record my demo.
1: But just because he found a spot didn't mean that it was gonna be easy. He was like a cool-ass white boy from Florida, right?
0: And he had this girlfriend and she did not care for me coming over there, man. You know what I mean? How long are you gonna be here? How much money are you paying? Why? When are you... You know, and I was just like, yo, Stacy, I'll, I'll give you the money next time I come. And if you don't bring the money, don't, don't come next time. <laughs>
1: like, she was... Out of control, man. But when it came to actually getting down to business, he wasn't just recording; he was also learning how to make the tracks. There were many different machines that you could use to sample. On this show, you've heard us talk about producers using a drum machine called the SP twelve hundred. But over at Stacy's house, he had an MPC. The Akai MPC would become a staple in hip hop production. That was where that that was the way you could capture samples, edit, truncate,
0: loop, add the beat to it, and to rap it, you know what I'm saying? So that dude taught me all of that. He
1: was going over to Stacey's in an attempt to make as many records as he could. His plan was to get this demo recorded and shop it around the record labels. But he wasn't going out there as just Ishmael. He had already thought through how he wanted to present the music. The original name
0: was Swift Tactics, but then I changed it to Diggable Planets pretty early on. But it was just me at the time. I'm listening to a lot of Sun Ra and a lot of really, really a lot of p And he was always on that, you know, interplanetary, outer space shit. You know, Clinton always talking about, you know, Star Child and Citizens of the Universe and all that kind of stuff. So I was thinking every person in themselves is kind of like a planet. We all you know, sort of in orbit together, you know, boom, boom, boom. That was kind of like where all that stuff came from. So a diggable planet, you know, a person that's diggable out here in this, uh, in this cosmos.
1: He was doing all of this world building and creating on his own, even before he had group members. And it would have been easy for him to just go ahead and do the solo thing.
0: But I always envisioned having a group, you know what I mean? Because back then you was cool in a group it wasn't individual shit popping off really like that you know
1: and his intuition would eventually pay off as the only member of the digable planets it would take years before he was able to put himself where he wanted to be and all of that exploration and determination from his upbringing would come in handy he was about to pull off what nobody in Seattle's Central District could have dreamed of world tours music videos a gold record and a Grammy award but first he was gonna have to find some group mates when we come back he does just that and the whole world gets a taste of diggable planets. Stay
2: tuned. Hip hop in the 90s. It was incredible. It was groundbreaking. And let's be honest here, sometimes it was weird. Gold Rush is Stupid Fly Media's latest hip-hop podcast. Each week, your host, Sean Kantrowitz, that's me, will be uncovering a different topic from the golden era of hip-hop. Some of it will hold a special place in your heart. Some of it will be a subject you may have forgotten about. And some of it, well, some of it we're still looking back and wondering, how the hell did this happen? And we won't be going on this journey alone. Each episode features in-depth, brand-new interviews with the artists, producers, eyewitnesses, and key behind-the-scenes players of the golden era, including Graham Poobah, Del the Funky Homo sapiens DJ Evil D, Fatlip from the Far Side, Hank Shockley of the Bomb Squad, Young MC, David Faustino, Merce, and many more. We all have great memories about 90s hip-hop, but you've never heard a podcast that looks back at it like this. Gold Rush, coming February 7th. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and follow at Stupid Fly Media and at Hip Hop Gold Rush for more updates and exclusive content. Don't don't, miss the Gold Rush!
4: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital.
1: Welcome back. By this point in his journey, Ishmael had turned into Butterfly. He gave up his studies at the University of Massachusetts to pursue a career in music. This led him to New York City, working for Sleeping Bag Records as an intern. This was his foot in the door and also his gateway into recording a demo.
0: And when I got the demo done, I looked in the back of Hits magazine, found out all the addresses. They were all in Manhattan, like in these kind of like old office buildings and you would go up, get on the elevator, go up to whatever the suite was or whatever and knock on the door and they would buzz you in and it would be like this kind of like warehouse operation of independent record stuff and see if you could leave your demo or maybe you could see the A&R guy and woo woo. woo. So I did that for like two years.
1: This was still in the early days of commercial hip hop. So if you wanted a record deal as an MC, you could mostly get in contact with the record labels. Back then there were so many independent labels around New York that he could literally pick up a book and find the address. He had a go-getter attitude about the whole thing. But keep in mind, he was from Seattle, and he was making it up as he went along. There was really no rule book for getting on in hip-hop in the 80s, and it was easy for doubt to creep in, especially when you're in the mecca of hip-hop, New York City, around New York City artists.
0: They're definitely on a pedestal. I'm coming from Seattle. I'm seeing, you know, these real New York hip-hop gods, you know what I mean? But at the same time, you know, whether whether you realize it or not, it, it eventually sinks in that you're standing right there with them, you know? The only difference is the sort of proximity to this goal. It starts sinking in, like, if I'm here, maybe I'm here. I think that's sort dawning on me after a while.
1: And that confidence would definitely help, as he needed to recruit members.
0: I used to run with this dude named Squared from here. Here in Seattle. He came to the East Coast to visit. I'm like, yo, we be in this group with me. All right, cool, cool. The first demo had a picture of me and him on it. So there was another ladybug, too, this other, this other sister named Katrina Lust that I went to you Mass, where she lived in New York. She was going to be Ladybug. But it took so long to get the deal and stuff that life just swerved in and they had to do other
1: shit. And it's crazy that he already had the names and everything picked out for Dickable Planets. Man,
0: I had this whole world, like, notebooked out, man. I probably had 15 insect names for different people that might be involved, like... Yeah, it was all, it was all mapped out.
1: And even though the original two members didn't last...
0: We actually got in Rolling Stone magazine in that incarnation of Diggable Planets, in the uh, Rolling Stone with Pee Wee Herman on the cover.
1: And eventually, the planets would align for him to meet just the right people at the right time. Cats would be in
0: New York, just be like, yo, let's go down to Howard and go have fun, kick it. And I used to see this guy everywhere, Philly, D.C., New York, Baltimore. Who is this dude? Ceno, he was like a, um party promoter. He was in a rap group himself. He used to dress hella fly, had a big flat top like cats used to wear back then. So
1: This was Doodlebug.
0: When I started seeing him, I was like, yo, I think I, wanna, I want him to be in the group. You know what I'm saying?
1: So one day, he's down in Philadelphia.
0: And they got this place called The Gallery. The Gallery's where all the neighborhoods come downtown and hang out. It's like a mall, shopping mall, sneaker stores, all that shit. And I see him and his man, Jamar, coming down the escalator. At the bottom of the escalator was like a magazine store. And the magazine had just come out with with the Pee Wee Herman cover and the Rolling Stone so I was like yo yo come here for a sec let me show you something man I said listen man I got this group man you know check it out I mean Rolling Stone boom 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 I want you to you know Be down and shit like that. He was like, yeah, okay, okay. And you could tell, like, the fact that it was in Rolling Stone. He was like, okay, you know. We started hanging out, writing rhymes and talking about it and dreaming and all that kind of stuff. And then he knew Mecca. That's Ladybug Mecca. She was from Maryland. He met her in D.C., but they were up in Philly at the time. And we used to just start all hanging out, dreaming and shit like that.
1: And even after solidifying group members, it was still a grind to get a record deal. But sooner than later, opportunity would meet preparation.
0: I was living in Jersey City. City, and I was coming to New York on the PATH train every day. I met this lady on the PATH train. I gave her my demo tape. She gave it to this her friend, this dude named Dennis Wheeler. He was working at Pendulum. He dug it and that got the ball
1: rolling. Pendulum Records was a hip-hop label that was founded by Ruben Rodriguez and they were being distributed by the powerhouse label Electra Records. And the plan was for them to release an album, an album for Butterfly that had been in the works for years. And that was years and years of thought and preparation. Because it was just my... My dream, you know what I mean? I have been sp- spent
0: every minute of the day for the last fucking 10 years on this shit, you know what I mean? like. And all
1: of that preparation allowed him to create a sound with these two new members, Doodlebug and Ladybug Mecca, a sound that was unique to them and also had Butterfly talking about some topics that many rappers weren't touching at the time. He took inspiration from the last poets and decided to speak to issues that were happening around him. I'm talking about a song on the album about abortion called La
3: Femme Fatale. Spontaneity has brought a third. But due to our youth and economic state, we wish to terminate. About this, we don't feel great, but baby, that's how it is. But the feds have dissed me. They ignored and dismissed me. The pro-lifers harassed me outside the clinic and called me a murderer. Now that's hate.
0: At that age, I knew some people that were going through that. It resonated with me. I understood those that were against it, the oppression, that was inherent in it, and I, I didn't like it.
1: So he felt he had a responsibility to speak up, a responsibility that came from his home.
0: My parents were always political. They saw life existence through politics, a political lens. In that, they always sided with the oppressed, partly because that's where they had been sort of relegated to because of the color of their skin and the opportunities that were or were not being given to them. You feel me? So. As a kid, I understood that it was a responsibility to know what's going on and speak about it, do something about it, never let injustice go by without Addressing it or doing something to push it out So I thought that's what you were supposed to do
1: And as the quarterback of this whole Diggable Planet situation He was also supposed to make really good records Songs that would get stuck in the listener's mind
3: Songs like Where I'm From Boogie job and rap is life Where I'm from, where I'm from Am I might play where Izzy, where I'm from, where I'm from It be like run your coat black Jupiter keeps a fat beats by the pack Where I'm from Nappy hair is life We be reading marks where I'm from the kids be rocking clocks where I'm from You turn around your cap, you talk over a beat And dick some sounds booming out of Jeep where I'm from
1: They were making groovy, jazz-infused hip-hop And it was a breath of fresh air When you listen to it, you can tell that this was a very high-concept project A project that would only come together like this with
0: preparation I was focused, but it was the focus of preparation, you know? I had seen it, it was my idea, I was gonna see it through according to specs
1: and after years of cutting demos on his own and needing to rebuild the group with two new group members he was now with two mcs that he really trusted and that was evident in how things played out with their biggest hit rebirth of slick
0: knowledge had this other group
1: that's doodlebug they also call him
0: knowledge when his boys back in philly and they had a
1: song called no bus fear had elements of that loop he's referring to the baseline to a song called stretching by art blakey He heard the track that the other producer made, and at first it was just a song that he really liked. But he was forced to remember it when he was backed into a corner over their initial single. So we had this song called Brown Baby's Funk, which
0: everybody at the label, everybody that ever heard it was like, yo, that's y'all's single. But it had a George Duke sample in it, and he wouldn't clear it. So we was like, yo, we got to get another single, you know, some, some, some. So I had always liked that song. I said, yo, man, my man Bun had made that song. I said, Bun, what record was that?
1: Butterfly got the record and got to work.
0: And so we had to kind of go in and make Last minute and they're like you got some? I said, yeah, yeah, I got something, so boom, we're going.
3: Weep like the breeze flow straight out of our lids. Then they got boo bodies hard by Brooklyn kids. Us floor rush when they DJ booming classics.
0: And uh come up with the cool like that thing. But I'm
3: cool like that, I'm 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 cool
0: delivered it, you know, and I just remember everybody kind of being, I I know they were wary because we had got all the way up to the single and it it fell through, you know what I'm saying? Like, fucking, it was tragedy, really. So when they heard this new joint, it it was better than than the one we had, because the cool like that, the piece like that, the slick like that, the horn, you could tell that they thought it was had a chance you know what i'm saying because it had hooks and stuff you feel me
1: they had delivered a home run and they were about to see the fruits of all of their labor rebirth of slick was about to open up all the doors doors that would take them all around the globe on television onto the grammy stage and into the hip-hop history books we'll be right back after this
4: It's the son, Dobe from Funk s Thanks for tuning in to Fresh Era. Did you know that these guys over at Stupid Fly are doing this strictly out of the love for 90s hip-hop culture? If you like what you hear, please do me a favor. Go to stupid-fly.com and pick up some merch to show your support, then follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Stupid Fly Media. Thank you for supporting our community of Golden Era Gladiators. Now head over to stupid-fly.com. <laughs>
1: It's the fall of 1992. Indigable Planets is getting ready for the release of their debut single, Rebirth of Slick. We, we finished
0: that, and that's the single. We got a gig in London right as the single was coming out. We go to London, play at this club, do our thing, and the single picking up steam. They're like, yo, we're going to do a video. My mom flew out for the video. That's her hand snapping in the video. She's in there a couple times, too. And the video comes out and starts... Moving up on the video charts, like on BET, every week they would have the top ten video, who oh, like that bumping, bumping, bumping. You know what I'm saying? All the way went up to number one.
1: Everybody in the country was down with Digable Planets.
0: It was real. You know what I'm saying? Like, damn, like we did it.
1: Yo, what's up? We are proud to debut your new rap
3: group, kicking off their single, Rebirth of Slick. Please welcome Pendulum Recording Artists. Diggable planet. My sisters and my brothers, but that's how I'm living when I'm living on living color and I'm cool like that. 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 I'm cool, like that. I'm cool, like that. I'm cool. Check it out
1: in february of 1993 diggable planet's debut album reaching a new refutation of time and space was released on pendulum electra Records. and off the strength of their monster debut single they hit the u.s billboard top 200 and they peaked at number five on the u.s top r b hip-hop albums chart from there it was straight to the moon and on their way they were stopping in cities all around the world
0: well yeah because we were able to headline like thousand seat venues at the time you know what i mean so it would be somebody opening for us
1: and at a At a certain point, they got the opportunity to tour with Sade.
0: You know, that was the first time I've been around a really, 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 really big star, you know, like in the backstage area and all that. And I remember she used to have this like ex MI6 type dude named Alf that was her like main security guard. You could tell, you know what I mean? Don't play around. But before she would go on stage, they would. Like wherever you were, you had to stop and stay there until she got from her dressing room to the stage. And I remember one time somebody in our band was just like, She's way over there, man, Shandy. And that dude, Alf, man, ran up on him. <laughs> ran up on him, man. And from
1: then on, everybody stayed still, man. But And when they weren't on tour, they were able to participate in things like MTV's Daytona Beach Jams. I'm into
3: Planetary. my insect movement every. It's going be if it's here. We will be cool like
0: that with Daytona Beach Jams continues. And it was wild. Like, it's countdowns and camera movements and this and that. Okay, now, okay, you're on. You know what I'm saying? You do your thing and then, okay, now
1: get up out of here. We got something else going. You know what I mean? Like, 1993 was a crazy year for Diggable Planets. They were everywhere from MTV to In Living Color to David Letterman. And this was a big deal for a hip-hop act because the late night show with David Letterman featured legendary musician Paul Schaefer.
0: At that time, you find out Paul's band's playing the music. Because we had a band, you know what I mean? But they're like, nah, Paul's band playing the music. And I remember thinking like, ah, oh, man, these corny ass dudes ain't going to be able to, you know what I'm saying? We had a band and they're all like Berkeley cats, like music, jazz heads, you know what I mean? Cool dudes. So we had to tell them, you guys ain't playing on this show. We're going to Paul Schaefer band. And I thought they were going to be like, ah, oh, that shit's going to be milk toast. But I remember them they all being like, oh, shit, you're going to see Schaefer. Because to the musicians that knew, they respected him because these motherfuckers could play anything, dog. He could do an arrangement and your shit was going to sound just like your record sounded. You know what I mean? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the program Diggable Planets. from. I realized, like, don't be, you know, Judging booked by the cover and shit like that. Motherfuckers are bad, man. You just, you know?
1: And as 1993 came to a close, they got word that they were nominated for a Grammy. And Butterfly took this opportunity to bring his parents along with him.
0: They probably hadn't seen each other in probably five years, six years. Frank Sinatra was there that night. And I remember we were sitting, like, in the chairs and shit. And um, Aretha Franklin was, like, on the next aisle over there. And... You know, my mom was kind of, like, fidgeting and stuff like that. I was like, what's going on? She was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And later on, she told me she was just like, you know, like, Aretha Franklin. You know, like, and then I had to think, like, oh, wow. Like, to her, that must be, like, seeing the queen. You know what I mean? Like, literally, it
1: is that. You know what I mean? And right there, in front of the chairman of the board and the queen, Diggable Planets category is announced.
0: And the Grammy goes to... All right, now... Zigaboo Planet and Martha Slick. I
3: like the uh, uh, first thing, my, my mom
0: and dad over there. We also opened up for James Brown in in um, Brazil for three shows.
3: And he was
1: able to bring his mother along with him.
0: You know, James Brown, he's like this, like
1: country, dude, but he's very proverbial in the way that he looks at life and shit. So when he got an opportunity to talk to the Godfather of Soul, he didn't know what to expect. He had shaken hands with him backstage at the show, but now they were on their way back to the States. We
0: were getting on the plane. We're sitting down in James Brown's seat, just right over there, and I'm like, man, they go James Brown. She said, go over there and tell him thank you for you know letting him, letting y'all you know, boom. So I go over there, and I'm like, Mr. Brown, we opened up for you. I just want to say thanks for the opportunity. Me and my mom, we really, you know, enjoyed it. And he said, well, stay in school. (laughs) I go sit back to my mom. I'm like, I'm thinking he hit me with this, like, this cliche thing, like, boom, boom, boom. She looked at me like, "Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, and I realized then, like, yeah, if James Brown tells you something, you got to unpack that shit, really. Which my mom was able to do like that. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, okay, I will. will stay learning.
1: So at this point, it's 1994, and their single Rebirth of Slick has already gone gold, selling over 500,000 copies. And while they've been out working the record, they've also been recording their sophomore album, Outcome. On the first album, they worked with producers Shane Faber and Mike Mangini. But on the second album, they went with Dave Darlington, who would craft a different sound for this second album. And with this shift in sound, came a shift in content.
0: We wanted to come a little harder, get more political, get, let like, let, let people know where we was really coming from, what we thought and what we believed. C's parents is revolutionaries, too. Mech was really feeling the force of all of that stuff, too. So we were pretty solid at that time on where we Wanted to come from with that.
3: I'm slicker this year. I'm slicker this year. Myrtle Ave, A got the pick in my head. And what? 16 joints later still lounge. Fresh from Flashbush in my baggy pistol desk. Stylist tight, boots. busted, crammy fatigues. 50,000 legs of black. So a chef, can we have a new slide? Player style, get a walk to the east, sun Wow, Crookland, New York.
1: Blowout Cone was released in the fall of 1994, and critically, it was a massive success. Publications went in on how amazing the lyrics and the music was, but for a number of reasons, including Pendulum switching from Elektra Records to EMI, this album didn't do nearly as well as their debut, and as 94 turned into 95 it was time for everybody to go their separate ways.
0: I know knowledge really, like I said, I sort of took him out of a world of his own that was he was the impetus of, you know? And he kind of lended his energy to a thing where I was that. And I think after a little bit of that, he wanted to go and do his thing, you know what I mean? That's why it was amicable, really, you know? And Mac, you know, the same. So it, it really wasn't bad or like nasty. Yeah, I look at I look at it like we did manage to stay together for those years, make two albums. Blowout comes arguably more loved in the end than 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 uh, reaching is, but we just been lucky to have a long uh, longevity with the the music, you
1: know. This year marks the 30th anniversary of their debut album, Reaching. And what's really dope is that Butterfly, Ladybug, and Doodlebug are all touring right now. is a Stupid Fly production, written and edited by me, Craig Smith, and executive produced by DJ Cheapshot, Chris Barnett, stay in school, Sean Berman is our mix engineer, music by The Math Club, artwork by Ray Allen Davis. As always, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can follow us on Instagram at Fresh Era Podcast. Follow me at I am Craig Smith. Go to stupid-fly.com to sign up for our newsletter and to purchase merchandise. And go subscribe to our new show, Gold Rush. We'll see you on the next episode of Fresh Era.